Welcome to Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli. And your other host, John Carson. And your other, other host, Mike Avigan. And we are three lifelong friends, musicians, rock fans that each week take an in-depth look at a rock album. Today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the 1978 Paul Stanley solo album. Uh, before we do that, we like to play a song from each of us that kind of lets you know uh, what we're doing musically. Uh, what song would you guys like to play? Starting with you, John. Uh, you can go back to um, let's let's do Almost Nightfall. Let's put that back up there. That's the other Wretches song. That's my favorite on the new Wretches album. So that's all right with you, and you don't mind. Cool. This is Almost Nightfall. <laughs> on dreams is swollen now with loves unseen the fishermen's dancing and drunken little lurches the street walkers spread-legged posed in their perches the strongest of bows is drawn back in its arc the longest of arrows hits right on the mark I'm counting my quarters to see if I stack up I ain't going home and I'm not gonna back up it was almost nightfall It was almost dark Streetlights from here to the skyline Appeared like a grid of electric sparks Skyward I looked and I wished on a star It was only an aeroplane I guess that's a wish that will never come true Hate to squander my wishes that way It was almost It was almost enough. It was almost enough. It was almost enough. 
I can't even go to my home Looking above me the heavens are pierced The starlight escapes through the dome so the fertile mind that dreams to a fault Takes the words of the wise with a half grain of salt But lacking a visible target implodes And wanders all night in a rat's maze of roads It was almost nightfall It was almost dark Streetlights from here to the skyline appeared like a grid of electric sparks. Skyward I looked and I wished on a star. It was only an aeroplane. I guess that's a wish that will never come true. Hate to squander my wishes that way. It was almost nightfall. From below rose the dust. say let's go with a track that uh dave you and i worked on uh years back in dame fortune um because it, it ties into some of the uh, the musical approaches uh to paul solo album uh let's play both sides of midnight because there's an interesting effect called an ebo that you and i uh utilized for the, the recording both sides of midnight by dame fortune all right well i think that one track can cover both of us for today then oh Take you back. 
before we get dive into Paul's album, I got a couple new Kiss books since uh, we guys met last. I got right. Kiss and Philosophy, edited by Cortland Lewis, which is uh, interesting. I mean, it's it's basically a bunch of sort of semi-philosophical essays written by academics that happen to be Kiss fans, you know. So it sort of suffers from uh, a, a little bit of, of the tedium of that academic writing does, you know, uh, tend to suffer from. But, you know, it's interesting to... Uh, to see their perspectives on things. I would definitely recommend it. The other book that I got is Conversations with Phantoms by Ron Albanese. And this is a series of interviews that he did with people that were involved with the making of Kiss Meets the Phantom. Um, and the, the reason why I mentioned this, the thing that's most relevant is that there's an interview with Bill Coyne in here um, in which he talks about the, the solo albums and he says, the original plan was to release all of them in a staggered fashion, which is news to me. Um, apparently, he was the guy that that put the kibosh on that and said, no, we need to do it in one big giant push. Um, and you have to wonder in retrospect if maybe that idea of pushing each album one at a time might not have actually been a better approach to uh, getting these things to sell. That would have been an interesting approach, only because you know we know you know the albums back then were you know what seven eight dollars a pop you know for someone to have to drop you know thirty forty bucks on four records on the same day was it was a big crash. so you know sort of staggering might have been a better approach but you know, in terms of the timelines maybe they were thinking well it's either it's either do or die let's get these out and you know whatever happens happens yeah exactly in fact I'm gonna read a little bit. Uh... A little quote from Bill Coyne here talking about this because it's it's interesting some of this background so the interviewer says so they were supposed to come out in a staggered fashion he says it really made a lot of sense they, they could have been focused on one then another it probably would have been done every few months I convinced Neil to put them all out at once up until the time we released them the energy and excitement were really there then all of a sudden mistakes were made the advertising agency Howard Marks put out the wrong advertising they mixed up the release of the ads. The first one they put out was announcing the albums had gone gold and they hadn't come out yet. Ironically, that was the beginning of the end. You know when something goes wrong and then things start toppling over? Then Handelman, who was a big record distributor, ordered just a million units. Neil went crazy. He pressed up another million and then another million and a half. We just had more units out there piling and piling up. It was a disaster. It wasn't meant to be. I mean, eventually they all went platinum, but right when, but right when that wrong advertisement first went out, it was like, oh boy, it went downhill from there. Now, here's the relevant part to our discussion last week, Ace Fraley. Well, at least Ace had the fluke hit, New York Groove. And Bill says, actually, in truth, if Eddie Kramer was a real producer, he's a great engineer, but he's not a great producer, he could have made that single into a real hit. It was a hit, a quasi hit, because it could have been bigger. Wow. Oh, shade thrown. Yeah. I don't know if it could have been a bigger hit. I mean I don't know. I think I take his point that, that Kramer's not a producer in the sense that Ezrin's a producer, you know, but at the same time, 
short of rewriting the song and making it a better song, which I suppose is always theoretically possible, I don't hear anything in the production itself that could have made that song sell anymore. Right, put a corn section and a string section in it, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I can't think of, like, anything that they would add. Yeah. I can't, I can't either. When you think about it, it's probably the most, you know, quote-unquote, produced track on the Ace album anyways. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it sounds markedly different than the rest of the album. And, what, it hit number 13 in the U.S.? I mean, it's a top 40 hit. A top 40 hit is a top 40 hit. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I thought it was really interesting that, that Bill Coyne had that to say about it. I mean, I guess... You know, no matter how successful something is, you always second guess yourself and say, well, if we had done something differently, could it have been even bigger than it was um, to, yeah. a, to a certain extent? But anyhow, that that kind of wraps up the uh, the stuff that I found out that was, was sort of relevant to the Ace album. So Paul Stanley, an album that was recorded by essentially two different bands in two different cities and very reflective in some ways of, of those uh, two different cities and two different bands. Um, first four tracks were recorded as demos in New York City um, in about 10 days. And the original idea was, well, we'll go out to LA, we'll get a real producer, we'll re-record all those songs, and then we'll record you know, five new songs. Um, and uh, the second, second half of the album, the second five tracks were recorded in Los Angeles. It took six weeks, and there was some butting of heads. And, uh, and we'll get into the details, I guess, as we go song by song about why that was and, and how it affected the album. But, um, Mike, I'll start with you. Tonight, you belong to me. Uh this is, I mean, there are so many great songs on this record, and, you know, Tonight Belong Me is definitely one of them. Um, you know, I think we've, we've spoken before about, you know, some of the great acoustic intros that Paul has done on songs like, you know, I Want You, um, you know, Black Diamond. Uh, but this one sort of, you know, goes to a whole different level in terms of the layers of guitars, and, you know, it, it's, it's so dramatic. Um, and then when, you know, the rhythm guitar comes in, it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's Paul doing all that he does in terms of being a great rhythm guitar player. Uh, it's just such a strong track, um, but also too, it's, it's the, the first use on a Kiss record of a thing called uh, a guitar effect called an Evo, which I guess Paul was starting to you know fave around this time. And for those of you that this might be a bit technical, a thing called an Evo um, is an effect that was made by a company called Heat Sound in Los Angeles, and it essentially is an electronic bow for guitar. And it's this little handheld device that you hover over a string and it'll sustain those chords. So let's say in the uh, after the first chorus, you'll hear it. And I think also behind the chorus, you'll hear this sort of what sound what might sound like a string section, but it's really guitar, and it sounds a little like. Which is a really cool effect. You know, it, it, granted, you can only do one string at a time, but if you layer it, uh, it's almost like a string section on guitar. And I think this is a great opportunity for Paul because I know he's always said he's influenced by uh, classical music. You know, if you can sort of do a string section on guitar, then you know, you're sort of you know treading both areas there in terms of you know hard rock and um, you know and classical music. But I, again, I think it's a great song. You know, it's a great opener. Um, you know, and, and the band is, is just killing on this track. I mean, it's it, it, I think the story behind a lot of these tracks on side one are a lot of them didn't, the musicians didn't know the songs going into the session. They just kind of learned them on the spot. So it just shows you what pro players they were to be able to learn the material and present it that way. 
and you know, it's great opening track and uh, it was great to see Paul play this uh, on the 89 solo tour that he did. I think it's the first time he started playing the song. So it, 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 I love the song. It's great. John? Yeah, uh, definitely. Again, um, I have nothing more to add that, Mike, it's a good song. It's a good riff. I like the the acoustic. And it also, again, has sort of a almost um, sad vibe to it. You know what I mean? Which is the second solo album, like Aces, starts with a, a song about bre- a broken heart. This is Paul's that starts sort of like a song about a broken heart, correct? Right? I yeah. Mean, oh, yeah. yeah. And so it's... Um, it's interesting because in a lot of cases, those are not typical Kiss songs. Mm. Uh, it also feels, you know, a little more depressed than um, a lot of stuff that Kiss would do. You know what I mean? A little sadder, a little less, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I like it. Um, you know, I have nothing more to add that, that Mike didn't say. But yeah, I think it's interesting to both Roots and interesting When I hear the other solo albums, you see if they open with more songs of hardware, but... It's interesting that these are the, the, the openers for both of these albums are uh, songs about broken hearts. Yeah, uh, thematically, when, like this yeah. album, there's a lot of pain expressed. Yeah, this on is this a album. much more passionate album. This is a lot more personal album. It feels like than most Kiss albums. Yeah, but it definitely is the most Kiss sounding of the Kiss solo albums. So for sure, and I think yeah. that's because Paul saw Kiss all along as sort of a vehicle for the stuff he wanted to do. So. You know, it wasn't like you really needed to radically change his approach mm-hmm. to songwriting, but he did stretch himself. I think his voice is, you know, much more melodic and at times even operatic sounding, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you can really hear that on this track. There's there's a there's a certain sense of melodrama that kind of pervades yeah, this album, yeah, I mean, especially on this on this uh, song. Um, one one point of correction. I, I guess it isn't the first time he used Ebos because there are some Ebos on oh, Love Gun, but that, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, Thank but you. this is even more extensive. I mean, there are at times like six tracks of Ebos going to make like full chords, and you know, there's also uh, I believe some twelve string uh, guitar happening here, like playing octaves and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that yeah. has that's nice harpsichord sound. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah. at the beginning, um, uh-huh. and Bob Kulik is sort of the the team mvp of this album um it's does he play on everything every single guitar thing is him except hold me touch me i think that was exclusively kind of a paul thing in terms of the guitars because he knew to get the hell out of that sorry we're moving (laughs) on but but also too on this subject um it may be um bob and there was also another uh, studio musician named uh guitar player named steve lacy who played on love and chains yeah Uh, i Trying to dig into that, and the only thing I could find was uh, Bob seems to think that they were both, both meaning you know, both Bob and Steve, and, and I'm sure Paul as well, were all playing on the track. I don't know who played the solo, um, but you know, there's definitely a lot of room guitar happening on that track, so it could may it could very well be uh, both Bob and, and Steve. But Steve Lacey, this is the only time he's on the album as you know, as sort of a third or additional guitar player on Love and Chains. On Love and Chains, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I mean, I think. It's a it's a great album opener. Uh, Tonight you belong to me. I mean, the, the whole idea. There's a lot of one night stands on on this album, like beginning relationships, ending relationships. Um, and I was thinking about it today as I was kind of looking for common threads. And you know, really at this point, whether it was a real relationship or a groupie or whatever, that was probably really the only kind of interaction that 
a guy like Paul was able to have with any females because they were just so busy. You know, I mean, there wasn't, they had just completed making two live albums and six studio albums within a few years. So, you know, I, I think a lot of this album rings true because of the frustration of, of being limited that way in terms of, of your relationships, just because of, you know, the, the path of his career at that point. And it's interesting, it's interesting too, because, um, you know, if you look at uh, Paul's book, Face the Music, you know, he, he, he speaks to several relationships that he had around, around this time. Yeah, is this and, Carol Kay he's singing about? I mean, I yeah, who I believe yeah. was part of the Kiss Felicity team. So I guess it was sort of a love triangle between, you know, Paul, Carol, and some other guy that uh, Carol was, was singing. married to. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Okay. Whoa. All right. <laughs> right. Didn't know I mean, that. That's, what, that's what I've heard is that she was married to this guy, Paul Chaster. As soon as he got her, he was like, oh, that was dumb. And you uh, know what I mean? He's like a guy who just lives for the chase. I don't know if she was married, but she was apparently pretty serious with this other guy. I mean, based on listen, listening to, you know, uh, face the music or whatever, it seems like that was how it played out. And okay. so like some of this, some of this album is based on just Carol Kay, who was not the famous bass player from the sixties, by the way. Right. No, yeah. Yeah, not Wrecking Crew, indeed. Yeah, yeah he mentions right. her specifically, and then there's one other woman I think that he mentions as well as, as being inspired. Sister sister or something, right? Isn't that... Yeah. Uh, was it? Okay. Yeah, and the point of reference there, we'll get to it later, is Hold Me, Touch Me. Okay. Right, right, right. So, so Tonight You Belong to Me, uh, one of the songs that they recorded as a quote-unquote demo in New York um, but they were going to try to re-record in L.A., and they decided they liked the feel of the demo better. Um, it, it, you know, it's funny because I really listened to this, like, with a fine-tooth comb. I don't hear any audio quality differences between the stuff that they recorded in New York in terms of quality overall compared to what they recorded in Los Angeles. In fact, I actually think in terms of the way Paul's voice sounds, I think it's recorded better you know, in terms of the mix and whatnot. Um, so, you know, I mean, granted, they weren't in a demo studio. They were in, like, a professional state-of-the-art recording studio working on these demos. But I yeah. also think it, you know, it's the difference between you guys have all been in studios working on albums when it's it's a whole other situation where you're like, okay, let's just, you know, like, get a rough of the song down and, you know, play whatever comes out and see how it goes. And sometimes you get that that magical feeling because everybody's relaxed versus like, okay, this is for real now for all of eternity. The red light is coming on. Three, two, one, be perfect. And, you know, like, there's nothing that can choke a, a good performance than that kind of added pressure. So I just think it's interesting. <laughs> Does that make you I'm think of something? I'm the king of the punch-in, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> All right, so can we move, move on here? Can yeah, on? speaking of move moving on. on, let's move on moving to move on. on. <laughs> All right, Dad, Mike, what do you think? Uh, it's, again, you know, a well-written Paul Stanley song. Um, you know, I, I think he's you know, speaking from the heart here. He's just telling stories about, you know, being on the road and, you know, how limited, you know, relationships can be in this case. And, you know, it's funny that it sort of conflicts with, you know, sort of his upbringing. I think he's, you know, it's it's he's gone on record to say that his relationship with his parents has always been strained. You know, so whether they gave him a whole lot of relationship advice, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he got a lot of that, and he learned a lot of things on his own. Um, it, again, 
a great song. There's a lot of great rhythm guitar playing. And in, in terms of the, uh, let's say, the demo or the organic approach to this this first side of the record, uh, if you notice, Paul's uh, there's a rhythm guitar that's pan right that changes it from the first verse to the second verse. So, you know, sometimes you're doing songs and you're working on them, you know, you kind of get these ideas as you're in the moment, uh, which might be like sort of a creative you know, process in the moment while they were tracking the song. I don't know. It's fun to know that that's there. And also uh, it's fun to know that this was a song uh, that was considered and played on the Dynasty Tour when I guess when they were sitting around maybe having a meeting discussing what solo album tracks they'd be playing on the tour. Uh, this is the one that they chose, and I think it went from basically the first night to the last night of the tour. There was other songs like Radioactive uh, from Gene's solo album and Tossin' and Turnin'. Uh, they had limited uh, exposure on that tour, uh, and they were later replaced with songs like Let Me Go Rock and Roll and Christine 16. So, you know, again, it's a strong enough track that it was considered to use for the entire Dynasty tour. You know, well-written song by Paul, you know, again, great guitar playing uh, by Bob Kulik, but also, too, this is one of the few tracks that were co-written by Michael Jack. Uh, and I guess Michael was brought into the group because I guess Paul noticed there was a song uh, that the babies had recorded. And I think one of the Kiss's photographers uh, sort of referred him to Paul. And then they got together and wrote some songs. And interesting, there's a great album by uh, a band that Michael was in. The band was named Marmalade. And I believe the name of the album is Our House is Rockin'. It's a really good, you know, hard rock, you know, you know, heavy guitar album that you should check out if you haven't heard it yet. Uh, you know, again, it, this is the first uh, co-writer on the record, and you know that sort of developed into other songs on the record. Yeah, Michael, Mike Jap, I guess uh, Barry Levine referred to him to it, and it was a song called uh, "A Piece of the Action," right? Yes, yes, yeah. That's it. Which, if you hear that song, it was recorded by the Babies. Um, it's very much in the mode of material for the Paul Stanley solo album, but it's also it's just it's very keyboard based instead of guitar based. But it's that same kind of mid-tempo, kind of quasi-new romantic. Um, it's got a killer hook in the yeah. in the in the um, keyboard line that just like ties the whole song together. And like I could completely hear Paul Stanley doing a hard rock version of that song. Yeah, yeah. And interesting point too. I believe I think that track was produced by Ron Nevison, which I believe Ron was. Uh, Paul's first choice uh, for the producer chair for this record, but I guess it didn't work out. I guess Ron was working with another band at the time. Yeah, that's what I've read as well. And then obviously Michael uh, co-wrote uh, later on with Kiss uh, the songs uh, Down on Your Knees and uh, Satan's Sinner. Right, right. Um, you know, the one thing that's interesting about this song is um, when Kiss played it, Paul really changed up the way that he sang it versus how he sang it on the solo album. I mean, you kind of expect the way that the band's going to play it to be different because they weren't the guys playing on the record. But he really turned the, the pre-chorus into much more of like a talk kind of thing as opposed to the melody that he sings on the album. You know what I'm talking about? Like the time is it? Yeah. It's, uh, it makes you wonder why he changed it so much from the recorded version because that's pretty atypical for him. And they also changed the, the coda uh, when they played it live as well because you, you didn't have like the female background singing, you know, you got to move. You know, they just sort of did like this move on, move on. I think it's A, B, you know, column response line at the end of the song. Oh, right, uh, right. You know, slightly different. Good or, point. Yeah, you, know, you know, you can adapt to, you know, to live performance either way. Yeah. You know, in some ways, this song kind of is, is the equivalent to New York Groove in terms of it has that rapid 
singing, almost proto-rap kind of thing happening, you know, versus the way that he had sung on albums up until that point. Um, although it's interesting to note, this is the one Kiss solo album that has zero covers on it. Uh, that's right. right. They're all written sort of in-house. Yeah. They're all written by Paul and this, this Mike Jap guy, it seems. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Any other thoughts on Move On, John? No, I, I I don't particularly like it, but you guys seem to really like it, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I mean, I don't I don't dislike it. I just don't find it particularly, you know, all that exciting. You know what I mean? It, it sounds it's got that sort of like '50s rock um, kind of groove to it, which I feel like has been done to death. You know what I mean? Particularly in the '70s. So I, you know what I mean? Like I, I listen to it; it's all right, but you know, it seems a little cliche, like musically and and, and lyrically. So I, I kind of. I would skip it if I'm listening to the record, but I didn't. So this is where uh, he introduced some background singers in the record. And uh, yeah. I think at the time uh, he was uh, friends with uh, Desmond Child and uh, the band they had called Rouge. And I think it was primarily the, the female singers that were in that group that are doing background vocals um, on this track. Yes, I, I, apparently Desmond. Miriam, Naomi Valley, and Maria Vendel. And that's Rouge, right? That's Desmond Child's band? Yes. Yeah, a lot of this album feels like very '70s power pop to me for me. Sure, and ain't quite right. So yeah, it almost has like a knack feel to it. I think. Also, I the know. raspberries. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The whole the whole album has sort of like almost a power pop feel to it, as opposed to sort of a. And again, it's the most Kiss of the Kiss solo albums, but it definitely feels like it's influenced by the outside. Sorry, go ahead. So what do you think of I Ain't Quite Right there, Mike? What's your take on it? I agree. I think it, it's 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 one of those songs where if you try to play it, you know, it's not the easiest song to you know, to execute in, in a live performance. It's very subtle. Uh, the guitars are just sort of, you know, this jangly thing happening. And, yeah, um, but yeah. I think there's, there's so much atmosphere in this song, um, you know, with, you know, the interplay of the guitar and, and the vocal. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know. I love the song. I've always loved it as a kid, and I love it to this day. I mean, it's just one of those. It's a very sort of maturely executed song, you know, on an, on an album that might not be easy to represent live. Uh, but you know, you can tell that you know, the the players knew what they needed to do when they showed up for the, the recording date, and uh, they nailed it. It sounds like a late '80s, early '90s band that had sort of ridden the uh, R.E.M. shoegaze wave, sitting down and going, we need to write a hit. This was their third album. and You know what I mean? I don't know how to explain that, but it's there's something about it that sounds like very jangly to me. And, and so, but it, at the same time, it has, you know, it obviously is a song out of the 70s or whatever, or out of Paul Stanley. But it definitely has a lot going on in it. And I think too, you know, sort of in a completely different direction. I've had, I've had conversations with other musicians where, you know, it's been sort of suggested that this this song should be. It, it sort of has an R and B feel to it as well, and it could oh, be covered much. by yeah, you know, any you know female R and B group that you you could name. And it, it's it's amazing that it hasn't been covered because I think it's a great opportunity that's being missed uh, by not you know having somebody to re-record the song because it, it could be a hit. You know, you just you, mm -hmm. know, you know put it out there. Absolutely. It's one of the few, you know, Kiss songs or Paul songs that actually has like a really laid back feel. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah, I I mean, it's it to me when I hear it, I hear it as, as an R&B kind of thing. Um, and it, yeah, you're right. It is a, a lot more mature. The idea 
that the relationship itself is, you know, has run its course. And for whatever reason, he's, he knows that it's, that there's no potential for it to be what it needs to be for him to continue the relationship, you know, and that's kind of a, that's a fairly mature perspective, right? I mean, you don't, you don't get that in your, in your first, uh, first three rides around the merry-go-round. No, no, you sure don't. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Great song though. Absolutely great song. Yeah. Okay. So wouldn't you like to know me now? Is that one of the ones that was done in New York or LA? That was done in New York. Yeah, first side, um, everything up to Take Me Away Together is one. The first four songs were, were in New York. Everything else was in L.A. Um, but then I think this is also the other song that uh, Paul references in uh, Face the Music, where he, uh, he mentions that this one's also about Carol Kay, the uh, former Kiss publicist. Which, you know, this song has a lot of, this, there's, there's a lot, you know, Dave, you can probably get more into this. There's a lot of great lyrics in this song. You know, you, you can tell he's sort of, you know, trying to have some sort of understanding here. Like, you know, nobody wants to you know, sleep alone. It's like, he's, he's so to the point uh, on this song. Yeah. I, I think it, it's definitely the, the neuroticism of knowing that you're in a relationship with somebody that's in a relationship with somebody else. And, and, you know, that's hurting your ego and your pride. And yet you're still obsessing over this person and hoping that you can somehow magically change the situation in your favor. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that that underlying tension of the song, you you know, you've been pushing so you don't get me tonight, you know, but he tried to call her when she wasn't there. So obviously, you know, it's it's uh, it's not working out the way that he wants it to. And it, it's it's a song about frustration, really. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes across, um, you know, it, the music behind it is a great you know support for that type of lyric because it is such a strong riff and there's a lot of, you know, drama to it as well so you know great that you can have you know a perfect match between uh, music and lyric paul in particular was influenced by the band uh, the raspberries and i think this is one of the songs where you know he can sort of you know cite a definite um influence by, by that band on, on this track so you know good to know that you know they can sort of be influenced by bands that are also you know of that era um but you know they don't necessarily sound like those bands uh wouldn't you like to know me rings like a like a baby song you know what I mean? I mean, it, it literally rings like a like a power pop, you know, 70s, you know, um, like the knack, you know what I mean? Or something like that. You know what I mean? Like this whole album, the more I listened to it, the more I was like, this sounds like 70s, you know, um, power pop. You know what I mean? Or Cheap Trick even. Yeah. Like yeah, it, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Like Cheap Trick or whatever. <clears throat> So, okay, moving on to Take Me Away Together as one. Now we should probably talk a little bit about the um, sort of producer of some of these tracks, Jeff Glicksman, who um, was involved in four out of the nine tracks. And uh, this is one of them. This is probably the one that he has the biggest stamp on in terms of his contribution to it. Um, so the story is that Paul Stanley wanted to have a producer on this album for at least some of the tracks. And uh, what he, I think what he really wanted was a guy that could handle some of the logistics of arranging recording and, and uh, hiring the right guys. And also somebody that, that could engineer the album in such a way to get the sounds that he wanted, like an Eddie Kramer could do. Um, and Jeff Glixman mm -hmm. was hot off of the big hit, 
with Kansas, Carry On My Wayward Son. And, you know, Paul was a big fan of that song and wanted to do some music that sounded like it was recorded in that vein. Um, but Jeff Glicksman found himself in a position where he thought of himself as a songwriter and a lyricist and an arranger much more closer to Bob Ezrin than Eddie Kramer. And that was the kind of contribution that he wanted to make to this album that Paul was not particularly interested in, in having him make. You know, Paul had very decisive ideas already about the way things should be arranged and the melodies and the lyrics um, and was not really open to that. So um, there was some friction there. Um, you know, the one thing that I noticed on the Jeff Glicksman tracks is that Paul's voice, his vocals are not nearly as clear as they are on the tracks that Paul produced by himself. Like there, there's, I don't know what it is. There's, mm -hmm. like, there's a, a fidelity problem there where like they're so drowning in reverb at times or something where you lose the articulation of what he's saying to the point where I'm willing to bet that a lot of the lyrics that are on the Jeff Glicksman tracks that are online are just flat out wrong. Cause I can't imagine uh. that they're actually what they say they are. If you look that stuff up. Um, but I do hear, if you listen to Take Me Away Together as One, in some ways it's the most orchestrated song on the album. Um, and it does have that kind of Kansas, you know, mm -hmm. feel to it. And I think that to the extent that the song works, it's probably due to Glicksman's influence there. Yeah, th that, that's what I took away from that as well. It's the most produced song on the album. I mean, the second most produced song on the album. But it's uh, definitely I, I don't I don't mind it at all. It's definitely a strong song, but it also it's a little cliche written for me. But I don't know. I mean, again, the, the, we're, we we're under the assumption this is about Carol Kay, are we not? I mean, this is uh, not yeah. sure for this one. I've not seen any direct reference, uh, but this is something that I wanted to bring up as well because the album's dedicated to two people. One is J.B. Fields, who was, I believe, a former Kiss uh, truck driver for when they were you know, doing touring. Uh, but then he also dedicates the record to uh, an actress named Victoria Medlin, who was in a movie called Vanishing Point. Um, and you know, they had obviously a relationship around this time, but then apparently she later um, took her own life. There's a lot of things in this song where you know, the lyrics are sort of lend us something that you know that can never be or you know that, that we were trying to do and, and now we can't do so i personally i just wonder if this is one of those songs that might be you know sort of a personal you know nod just to that relationship i you know I, i've not seen anything that can confirm that but you know but at the same time too this is also uh another co-write song this is also also co-written by michael jap and I, I did see an interview uh, with Mike, where he was saying that he had the, the Mike had somebody in mind when he was writing this song. I guess somebody he was in a relationship with. Okay. Um, and I guess you know Paul sort of you know sort of worked on it and developed it and took it from there. Uh, you know, tough to say, but I, to me, this is like a sort of like a real period piece because you know certain albums in the seventies sound like seventies albums. Uh, I have a song. I always think straight away of um, two tracks from the Fleetwood Mac Rumors album, which are. Um, Oh, Daddy, and Gold Dust Woman, you know, D minor chord structure, whereas like, that's sort of like a, to me like a backwards Gold Dust Woman, where the chorus in Gold Dust Woman goes ascending from B flat to, to D minor, whereas you know the riff that's in the verse in Paul's song goes in the opposite direction, but it's really the same chord structure. Hmm. But then he also introduced you know the phasing on the guitar that was also done. So to me, it's almost like 
you know, did he get rumors for Christmas and listen to it and say, I want to do something like that? Right. And, you know, was it interesting? Tough to say, but I think to me, this song is, in terms of presentation, is amazing. Uh, just the way that the vocals go and how serious the, the, the subject matter is. And I love the fact, too, that when you, you go from like the verse into the chorus, the, the vocals have a different effect on it. It has this sort of slapback echo that to me as a kid, I remember, there's certain things I remember from seeing Kiss um, in 1979. Granted, you know, how much can an eight-year-old kid remember from a Kiss show? But there are a, a handful of things that I remember about that show specifically. One is how Paul's voice sounded in a, you know, a huge amphitheater, you know, like at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. There's a sort of slapback echo that I remember hearing. And to me, when I hear this chorus, that takes me right back to that day, you know, in, in the summer of 79 and how Paul sounded in, in a huge arena. It, it, it's, a, it's an interesting, you know, twist from, you know, going from a verse where you have this sort of direct vocal that you're involved in. And then when you go to the chorus, it sounds you know, almost like larger than life. Uh, to me, it, it's a great presentation. Um, and I love the fact, too, that, uh, you know, this is the introduction of a different drummer on the album, Carmine Peace. Yes. Uh, who has been with Vanilla Fudge. And also, I think he co-wrote uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy with uh, Rod Stewart. Yeah, um, he did. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's interesting, too, this this song is the first song on the record that is in uh, standard or 440 tuning, whereas you know, the whole you know, first four songs on the record are all uh, tuned a half-step down. Mm. So I wonder what the decision was there. Was it like my voice works better in this range for this song or, you know, we're in LA, we're going to you know, go to 440 now, who knows? You know, but it, it's an interesting you know, change that um, those, you know, who don't play music might not notice straight away. Right, right. But again, it, I love this song. I love this yeah, song. I mean, to me, it's great. It's interesting that you mentioned Carmen because that, that to me is one of the things that makes the song so great is it's a lot more straightforward drumming. I think the ending is like fills all over the place, you know what I mean? Like, Super rock star moments, you know what I mean? And they are. And like it's that. funny yeah. that you mention that because supposedly Carmen, a piece or, or the producer or whatever, there was some disagreement about whether or not the, those fills were perfectly in time. So they actually did some razor blade edits to move the fills around a bit to like, you know, cut them into more precise time. You know, oh, man. Funny, uh, That's funny, funny things. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, no, there are there are those drummers that you know I, I've played with a few where they, they give you so much space you, know, you feel like you need to hurry up. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> it makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, sometimes those are the best drummers around you know, because they give you that much space. They're not trying to, you know, just make noise. Yeah. Just that weird argument I heard that like Americans played rock and roll in four and a half four time. You know what I mean? That there was always sort of a slight lack. I mean, I swear, I I I heard someone else say it, but I actually came up with it too. That there was the way that rock musicians play in America versus British or other rock musicians is there's a sort of laid back. There's like a little mm. bit of of air. You know what I mean? And it's not directly on that four all the time. You know what I mean? So they're they're yeah. coming in late on the downbeat of one or what? No, it's more like they they let that that riffs sort of ring a little bit at the end the space there's a little bit of space so it's it's almost like it, it doesn't count they're not coming in late or yeah i guess you could say they're coming in late but it's almost like they're extending each like bar a little bit right i've heard people say that about you know that that's i mean i don't know i've, I've heard you know some people have said like they're playing in five four you know and they're not playing in five four they're just letting it hang out a little bit you know what i mean and that's right uh, what and, then, heard sometimes. and then emphasizing the one and the three a little bit more. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess four and a half, four is kind of a silly way to say it. But I've always that's something that 
I forget who I was talking to about that. Somebody who actually knew something about music. I think it was, well, you, another Pittsburgher, Jason Titus. I think he was the one talking about it. Oh, yeah. If you remember that. I know Jason. Sort of like a, yeah, there's a little bit of space there. Um, and then... And then I read it again in some other some magazine with someone who was much smarter than both. Well, nobody's smarter than Jason Titus, but smarter than me, who had pointed it out too. So that that reminds me, I was actually having a um, I am back and forth with Matt Starr about you know we were talking about playing behind the beat, and uh, mm-hmm. you know he was saying how like you know he's been in bands where everybody plays behind the beat including him and i said well then does it become a game of chicken as to who hits the one first because if the drummer's behind the beat and so is everybody else you could never start the song well it's better than it's better than the drummer that sounds like he's running you know running a runaway truck down you know um, yeah, Nigley Hill. You know what I mean. That was every one of us has played in the band where the drummer does that. You know what I mean. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, probably yeah. been all in the same band at the same time. Same drummer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, yeah. So I like I. So I sometimes think that there are drummers that have that little pocket thing going, so they don't speed up. You know that they're paying attention to what they're doing. Absolutely. But, oh. Absolutely, and Carmen's probably one of them. Yeah. So moving on to It's All Right. So, if I was going to say anything about the song, it's all right. I like the riff quite a bit, and it's actually sort of a very '70s rock kind of thing, almost bad company esque. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I liked it. I mean, again, it's a nice, like another power poppy, like almost Slade sounding kind of uh, song. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's definitely this whole album is definitely influenced. But I mean, I think Paul Stanley, to his credit, is someone who's always been like. I'm going to try and write this song in this style, you know, Hard Luck Woman being sort of a Rod Stewart song or, you know, uh, uh, this whole album has sort of these like, you know, much more power poppy sounds than usual Kiss albums, that kind of stuff. So it's funny that you say that there's a great quote from Paul Stanley where he talks about, you know, when you're looking at a painting or a photograph, some people like to look at the painting and photograph really close up until all they can see are the dots. He goes, I like to look at things so close up so that I ask myself what's making up the dots, right? And I think that's uh-huh. that's his approach to music too, is if he hears something that he likes, he likes to deconstruct it and break it down and build it back up again and recreate. You know, it's yeah. almost like he's taking apart an engine and fixing it and seeing if he can improve upon the design when he's writing a song. Yeah, I, I totally buy that. I mean, because, it, I mean, this album sounds... Like I've said this like 1800 times, but it is the most Kiss sounding of the of the Kiss solo records. But at the same time, it sounds very 1970s glam rock um, or or power pop or it sounds like the babies or the knack or the you know what I mean? That kind of stuff that was coming out at that time. Um, and I think that's very cool about it, you know, because it sounds a lot more. It still has sort of a timeless feel to it, the album, except for a couple of songs. But, you know, a lot of them stand you know stand the test of time because they're good solid songs 
Mike? I, again, to that point, John, I agree. It's 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 interesting where you can have an album that you know sort of sounds of the era, um, but it still sounds you know it, it, I don't want to say it sounds fresh, but like it can sound of the era, but it doesn't sound dated. You know, as, as backwards as that might you know appear to come across. But definitely, this is a band that you know sort of wears their influences on their sleeve, and I think you know in this case, it definitely sounds bad company-ish. But also, um, on a musical note, in addition to being one of the songs that's in a 440 you know standard tuning, well, you know in, in the key of a, of a 440 tuning, uh, Paul had played this in an open G guitar tuning, which is uh, something that Keith Richards made you know huge use of. Which that just basically involves you know, tuning your A string down to a, a G note, and then you can basically play you know a, a power chord with one finger. Mm. Um, but again, I think part of that jangle oh, is wow. definitely the, the, the Stonesy influence. Um, and I think he's mentioned they use a, a particular amplifier known as uh, Galleon Kruger, right? Um, which I, I think they sold later at the auction. I don't know if that was the same at the auction in 2000 at Butterfields. I don't know if it was the exact same amplifier, but uh, you know how many Galleon Kruger guitar amps are out there that Paul had that you know. That, he, you know, that were available. Anyway, point being, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of like a very brown sugarish uh, mm-hmm. guitar riff. Um, but then again, you get that right. that really yeah. chunky rhythm section behind it, and then you know the great lyric from Paul, you know, because he's basically saying, you know, if you want me to stay for the night, it's all right. You know, it's not a problem. You know, I mean, how could you? You know, we've all been in relationships. Who walks down the street going, hey? You know, this is the way I, I see the situation. Hats off to Paul for, you know, for well, years it's, like it's a great almost pimp-like reversal of the sexual dynamic, you know, where yeah. it's like, hey, if you want me to be satisfied, that's okay. Right? It's not... It's not <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting song, too, lyrically, because I think here's where the conflict really comes in. On one hand, it almost seems like he's talking about he wants a relationship with this girl, where he says, I knew from the moment I picked you up, I would never want to put you down, right? Don't try and tell me that you've had enough until you realize what you found. And then towards the end of the song, he says, you know, I'm giving you the warning. It's just a one night stand, right? And seemingly, seemingly contradictory in conflict with itself, but at the same time, that was probably all that he had to give to any woman at that point, regardless of what type of relationship he actually wanted to have or how much he felt, you know, romantically for her, because, you know, these guys were busier than busy. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, that there, this is another example uh, on this record where he does this, whoa, whoa. There's like this vocal jump that he does, you know, when he's, he's particularly, I think it's in the bridge, which is when you know, whoa. Um, he does the same kind of vocal technique on uh, Ain't Quite Right as well. So, I, I, you know, it's one of the signature, you know, Paul, you know, vocal deliveries that he does here and there. But I think it, he made, you know, uh, several examples of that on this record. Um, you know, again, it, it's a great vocal by him. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, on a personal note, it's funny because I remember as a kid, you're listening to these records you know, in sort of an open household where your mom's there and your sister's there and you know, somebody's washing the curtains or whatever. You know, but I remember multiple times that my mom would be around and hear songs like Take Me Away Together as one or It's All Right. And she would kind of look in the bedroom and go, all right, I like that, you know. And <laughs> later on, you know, mom, uh, my sister and I uh, went to see Paul uh, when he was a fan of the opera. He's playing the lead in, in Fan of the Opera in Canada. Um, you know, and after the, the performance, we sort of went outside to see if we could find him. And, you know, I remember he was exiting through like a, a back exit door and I sort of motioned to mom like, hey, he's over here. And 
you know, I think Paul obviously is an attractive guy. And I think, you know, mom had probably two crushes. One, which was probably her initial husband. Two would have been Steve Perry from Journey. I think three would have been Paul Stanley from Kiss. And I remember mom coming around the corner when I was taking a picture with Paul and she just said, hi, Paul. And he kind of waved and, you know, that just made her day. You know, she, the fact that she got to say hi to Paul and he waved and he was cool was, you know, a, a great moment. I think this is another one of those songs where, you know, Dave, you know, I always talk about, you know, if you're playing music for your parents and they, and they like it, is that such a good thing? Well, in this case, this, this was a good thing because, you know, mom embraced, you know, this record, particularly those two songs and, and particularly... Uh, you know, the song, It's All Right. So, hey, Mom, thanks. <laughs> thanks for letting me buy the record, and thanks for taking me to the show in 79, and thanks for embracing the music that I enjoyed. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's funny, right, because I have a very vivid memory um, of being over at my friend Alex Scheffler's house, and, you know, like, the, it was a hot summer day, and the windows were open, and, like, the way that his house was set up, it sort of looked out onto a courtyard of other houses and their garages, and somebody was blasting this solo album like through another open window and I could hear them playing, I think probably this song and like saying to myself like, oh my God, like somebody else has this album. Somebody else likes it enough to be playing yeah. it and blasting it. And it's like, you know, you, you can't really overemphasize the, <laughs> the feeling that when you're a Kiss fan sometimes and you're buying the stuff and listening to it, that you might be the only guy <laughs> <laughs> that has the guts to yeah. play it, you know, and enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. So I, that brings back any memories for you, John, with this one? No, again, this was part of my large cassette purchase in, uh, high school at a garage sale where I bought all four uh, solo albums on cassette. So they must've been redone in the eighties at some point or put on yeah. cassette in the eighties. Yeah. I don't know. At any rate, I just remember buying all four at a garage sale and playing them uh, throughout a lot of uh, late high school and into college, driving a lot, listening to them. Okay. And then not listening to them ever again. You know what I mean? Like I, I, that's what's so interesting about this is Ace's solo album. I, I remember vividly this one. I have no memory of at all. Okay. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting that this had so little impression on me. But now that I'm older and listening to it again, I'm like, this is actually a pretty solid album. Because I'll be perfectly honest. When I first put this on, I was like, you don't remember any of this. This sucks. You're not going to like this. And I listened to it once and I was like, hey, I'm right. I don't like it. It's not a very good album. I'm going to I'm going to be the guy that says this is a bad album. And then I listened to it again and then I started to grow on me. And then I was like, hey, this sounds like the babies. This sounds like Bad Company. This sounds like Aerosmith, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, well, he's getting uh, influences by other stuff. And so now I'm, I have this newfound respect for this album. But I think I've maybe played it like twice when I when I bought it and wasn't all that impressed with it. See, for me, I go back and forth as to whether or not this is my favorite solo album or Aces is. Because, I, I mean, I, I love pretty much every song on both of those albums so much. It's hard for me to say which I like better. I still like Aces better, but I, I definitely, there's stuff on here that I really didn't even think about that now I like a lot. But, I mean, we're going to come up to my all-time favorite here, which is Hold Me, Touch Me, Think of Me When We're Apart, which is... As an art teacher, I generally will actually give students A's when they try something new and it fails. You know, I would say, <laughs> like, you need to, you know what I mean? I'll, they'll be like, um, I'm like, okay, we're going to use colors. We're going to use some, you know, these oil pastels to color them. 
right, well, Mr. Carson, can I try, you know, can I uh, watercolor it? And I'm like, that's not going to work. It's going to wrinkle up all the paper. It's not going to work very well. But if you want to give it a shot, go. And then you sit there and you watch it and you're like, holy crap, that kid is trying so hard. Even though I told them that it was going to look like garbage on that paper and they still did it and they're still working at it. Yes, this looks like a piece of crap, but I'm going to give you an A because you experimented with it and you saw it through. And that's what hold me, touch me, think of me when we're apart is because it is absolute garbage. Um, but the fact that he actually wrote it and followed through with it, I mean, it sounds like I, there's, isn't there like one thing where he's like a, a gymnastics instructor in a Folgers commercial or something like that? And you're just like, what the hell is that? Okay, well, that's my uh, thing to this. It's like, what the hell is this? Like, what was he thinking? But then he did it. He saw it through. He produced it. It's all him. You know what I mean? Apparently, because he's, he's not, there's no co writer on this. Right. So it's like someone was like, man, we need an AM radio hit from Paul Stanley. No, he was like, I'm going to see if I can write this AM radio hit like Air Supply and see what happens. And so I give him an A for the for the attempt. I give him I for the it's not going up on the artwork of the year board. Definitely not getting submitted to the city show. And I'm not going to put it on the school's Instagram feed, but he's still going to get an A for it because he went all the way through with it. Okay, I agree with you that if there's a song on this album, I'm going to skip. It is this song. I yes. Mean, it is It is a, a very saccharine, sweet, smaltzy kind of love song. But, you know, I, I see Paul, like, looking at the hit that Peter Chris had with Beth, right? And I see Paul going, you know, I've got a, I'm a much better singer than Peter Chris is, and I can write a song that's just as heartfelt as, as Beth is, and about missing somebody and being on the road. And, you know, I mean, I think the arrangements here, you've got strings, you've got keyboards, you've got violins. Um, it, it, it is a bit much, it, it, you know, for, for that arrangement to kick in right at the beginning of the song and just stay in that, that way, like throughout the entire song. Um, but by that same token, I kind of love Paul's solo in this song. Like, I, it's the one time he plays lead guitar. On oh, it. my God. You're actually trying to defend this? Okay, go ahead. I go am. Ahead. I am. And, and you know, I don't... I mean, it's. I think it's got way too much reverb on it. Um, like, it almost... Like, there's almost more reverb than there is solo at times. But but I, I think it's a great solo. And it's interesting, right? Because Bob Kulik talks about how his approach to this album was playing like Dick Wagner and playing, but like, who's the other guy that was a ringer for Kiss guitar solo? Steve Hunter? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Bob Kulik was trying to play like Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter. And then Paul Stanley has said he was trying to play like Bob Kulik, which means that he was trying to play like Bob Kulik, <laughs> trying to play like Dick Wagner, who was trying to imitate Ace Fraley. And for all uh. of that, I did the solo on this album might be my favorite Paul Stanley solo. Huh. Yeah. I mean, are like, you saying that will make me go back and listen to it because I listened to it once and then tried to listen to it a second time and skipped it. So I probably didn't even pay attention to the solo. Mike, you know the solo show. off the top of your head? Well, here's one. It has several Paul Stanley's uh, signature licks, which he always plays around like that D triad. <laughs> 
know, he, he does that I Want You. He does it in, in so many of his solos. Uh, it's it, it's a great lick, but it, again, it's 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 almost multi-layered, I think, because there's like an octave effect going on. Did he double it, or was it an octave effect that he did? It, it just sounds huge. And again, we, early on, we mentioned that he's heavily influenced by classical music. You know, there are several examples in this song where you know it is basically like he's sort of got like a symphony or an orchestra in his head, and this solo is one of those you know examples. But also too. Um, one of the, uh, the persons doing, uh, keyboards on this, uh, track is, uh, Doug Katsaros, who was also in a band, um, by the name of Balance that, uh, Bob Kulik was in as well. Um, and Pepe Castro, who was also, you know, a friend of Kiss early on and Pepe later wrote songs with Kiss as well. And taught um, but, you know, bar chord, supposedly. Exactly. But, you know, the point being with, you know, the, the, the orchestra thing and that, how that stems from the solo is, you know, the, the, uh, the, the keyboards on this song are, I think, called an Omni, um, I think it's called Omni Ensemble, which is basically just like it's an imitation string section on, on a keyboard. And it was a signature sound from, from that era, uh, particularly other examples are uh, uh, Elton John track, uh, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. You can hear this keyboard sound there. Also, the Stones on the Black and Blue album, um, Fool to Cry and Memory Motel. It's it, That keyboard sound is that sort of it's schmaltzy imitation string section, but it sounds of the era. And to me, that's cool. And to the point where I've, I've used that sound on a recording that should be coming out um, soon with, with, with my band, The Blessings. To me, it's, it's one of those sounds that is currently underutilized, but it was heavily utilized back in those days. And it's yeah. sure it's, it's of the era, but it works for me. And I don't know, to me, if, you know, Paul obviously holds a, a personal uh, belief in this song because if he wanted to do all the guitars, you know, and just see this through from beginning to end, you know, he, he must have had a vision for it and thought, okay, I just need to be me and this is what I'm going to do and nobody else is going to write a, a battle like this, you know, like I am. And it, whatever you may think of it, that, that's what it is and he's going he's gonna to do it. But I agree, Dave, this is one of those amazing Paul Stanley guitar solos um, that, you know, just has sort of like that, you know, he's holding on to those notes and he's playing them you know, from the harp and then it could fall apart at any minute. But, you know, that's that's, you know, the, the, the sort of the true artist in a way, you know, you want to be on the edge like a Jimi Hendrix in a way, but not like, you know, wildly out of tune or you're pausing and feeding back. But he's just, you know, there's 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 space in between the notes. Oh, um, yeah. But to, uh, to John's point on the song structure itself and how it comes across, you know, I mentioned hearing the song as a kid, um, you know, in household growing up in the 70s. I remember, you know, my mom would also come around the corner when this song would be playing, and she would say, "Why is he singing it that way? You know, what, what's he doing?" You know, so <laughs> she could right. See it, it's like, all right, you know, I I know Paul, you know, but yeah, what it sounds like going on? Yeah, you know, mom, I agree, but you know, hey, you know, it, what's that, John? It sounds like he's out of tune in parts when he's singing, and I, you know what I mean? Or there's something wrong with his voice, like. It's not even like I, I can sit through a lot of AM schmaltz, AM radio schmaltz, but there's just something about it that's like, you're, I don't know if this is what your mother meant, but it, it seems like he's a little bit off kilter. You know what I mean? Like he's not like for all the intents and purposes that he put forth in producing this song, there's moments where I'm like, why didn't you just sing that song again? You know what I mean? Like, I don't or sing that line again. You know what I mean? Just to get it in tune or in, in, in time, you know, but I don't know, man. I Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. This was the single, so right, and this was. made it to number forty or something, right? Didn't it? Like number forty in the top two hundred. That's nothing. I mean, that killed for a top. The song that's literally in the top forty. You know? Right. <laughs> like he made it. Yeah. 
Casey Kasem had to count them down at some point, you know? So it's a little contrived, but at the same time, I, I think there's, there's a lot to recommend it at the end of the day. Uh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't, I would not recommend this to anybody. We, but, <laughs> we can agree well, to disagree. Well, you know, right. Okay. We can, but, you know, but also think about this. And I, I think I read a story with, um, you know, I, I think, you know, Paul was basically trying to imitate, you know, keyboard parts when he was playing you know, these guitar parts on this song, you know, and there are a lot of chord, chord changes, but at the end we had that. I mean, you know, nobody's, you know, going out on stage playing a chord structure like that. So, you know, again, the, the true artist that is really, you know, trying to do something that might be, you know, something that, you know, the typical Kiss fan might not expect. You know, again, I think it shows a maturity in terms of his playing, um, his influences and, and how he's going to have that come across, you know, despite the, you know, his voice sounds definitely different on this, on this track. Um, but it works, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, for me, some of my favorite songs from the Stones are those, you know, weird, small ballads, you know, on like albums like uh, Black and Blue or um, uh, It's Only Rock and Roll. You know, to me, you know, there, there's room for all of that. You know, if it was all just like, you know, an ACDC record where it sounds like, you know, the same song all the time, well, who wants that? You got to have some some different you know, textures and different chord structures. And, you know, this is obviously an example of that. And to me, I love this album. To me, every time I hear this record, it reminds me of being at various points in my life. In 1978, when the record came out, in the 80s, when I was listening to Kiss and loving Kiss, when I was in Kiss tribute bands trying to figure out which of these songs in this record I could play and that we could represent in a live situation. We, you know, there's a lot here that, that I've tried and, and a lot that, you know, doesn't work. But, you know, to me, this record has always been... It's almost like, you know, Dave, you and I have always spoken about, I'm sure, John, you've spoken with Dave about this too. Sometimes they're just those lost, forgotten, you know, classic rock records. And to me, this is one of those. Yeah, I will say that it is definitely underrated because I didn't give it a second thought. You know what I mean? But I definitely, uh, now that I've listened to it a few times this week, I'm like, hey, this isn't as bad as I thought it was. I really thought I was going to listen to this and hate it. But now the song eight here, Love and Chains, is the strongest song on the album as far as I'm concerned. And that, to me, is the thing that should have been this, uh, the single. You know what I mean? Like, that's my favorite song on the album. Uh, great riff. You know, it's a good, solid rock and roll, you know, song. It's definitely, it, it might be the, the hardest-edged, most aggressive-sounding song. On the, right, on and the that's why album. I like it the most, yeah. But yeah. again, I mean, I don't know about the... Sorry, I didn't mean to jump us from... No, that's Hold fine. Me. That's fine. Yeah. Um, that's right. The, the, last, the last point I want to make on um, Hold Me, Touch Me, I think that might have been the song that uh, Paul had um, uh, share sister that he was dating at the time, Georgianne, uh, in mind. Okay. Uh, so you know, if there's inspiration for the lyric, you know, that, that might be it, you know, you know to okay. be confirmed. Okay. But, you know, again, you know, when you think about it, it's... It, it, takes a lot of courage to say, you know, this person is <laughs> who I had in mind when I wrote that lyric. I mean, you know, that, that, that's a bold step. You know, the other person in the relationship might not want to you know, have that be known. He might not have said that at the time, though, right? He said that now. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Being in a, Making music is like pulling down your pants all the time. You're always like, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? <laughs> and only when someone else has finally agreed that it's okay are you like, ah, I wrote it about you! Yeah. <laughs> right yeah no but that's totally it i mean i can i i mean it's it's funny because we've all been through that thing where we're like yeah we're writing songs but i don't really think this is this song any good is this song any good is it and i don't think any of us have ever had that moment where we're like 
I mean, we have, you know, people have said that it's good, but we haven't had, say, the, the, the embrace that Kiss has had, where these are people that are being told, your songs are good, your songs are good, you're, you know what I mean, over and over mm -hmm. again. So that, that, text, that is something that I was thinking about when making this, or listening to this album, is Paul Stanley was being told, you know, he's now got six albums under his belt, that he's being told is, you know, these are all good. You're a good songwriter. You know what you you understand how to do your job, you know. And so how confident was he walking into doing this? I would assume a lot more than, say, Ace Frehley, you know what I mean? Who hadn't really written anything um, that had done as well as, you know, the stuff that Paul had written for Kiss. You know what I mean? Well, here's but, here's how you can measure the difference, right? Because... When they were out in L.A. the last time to do Hotter Than Hell, they started recording the album. They didn't really love the sounds that they were getting. You know, they were under the gun financially and in terms of studio time. They said, OK, well, we'll just work with it. We'll make it the best we can. Um, when he went out to L.A., he started at first recording in a studio that may have been Sound City. And for whatever reason, mm -hmm. he didn't like the sound that he was getting. And he called up uh, management and said, you know, we're pulling up stakes. I want you to find me another studio to record in. And apparently they, you know, initially gave him some guff and said, well, do you know how much it's going to cost to, you know, cancel this studio and find and rebook another studio at the last minute? And he said, how much is it going to cost if I don't make this album? So, <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah, to be yeah. able to walk in and have that much, yeah, confidence about it, which I sometimes think that, Again, what leads him to make "Hold Me, Touch Me, Think of Me" more apart? You know what I mean? Like he, I don't know. You know, he's de he's definitely at a point in his career where he's like, "I am good at this," you know, so I'm going to continue to do what I do. Um, but then takes the stuff and sort of experiments with it. There's a lot more sort of glammy stuff and some sort of bad company type stuff. And you know, I don't know. Just an interesting thought. And um, uh, you know, because. The hold me, yeah. You know, I don't know. I keep going back to that. I'm like, that song is just terrible. What were you thinking? But then he's Paul Stanley, he can think whatever he wants to at that point, you know. Absolutely. So, moving on from the, the, the most mellow song, shall we say, to Love in Chains, which John, you have already declared as your favorite song on the album. Yeah. Um, this is one of those that I hear the production limitations on the way that you know his voice is mixed or the effects on his voice. Some of those lyrics are really yeah. hard to make out during the verses mm -hmm. to the point where like, if you look at the, what the lyrics are supposedly on the internet, I have serious doubts because they just don't make a whole lot of sense uh, in terms of what people have interpreted them being. Um, I think it's an interesting song in the sense that it, it kind of does that thing that Gene did in larger than life. You know, it's, there's a playful, twist obviously a song called love in chains is going to initially conjure images of uh bondage and sadomasochism mm -hmm. and and yet you know it's done with sort of a wink and a nod that what he's really saying is that this attractive woman is keeping some truer part of herself to herself and not allowing herself to fully engage in a loving relationship with any one man and it's it's a lyrical theme that Paul will go back to again and again, most notably probably on Thrills in the Night. Um, you know, the idea that no one really knows her, that uh, part of the condition of satisfying her sexual desires is also 
kind of putting on a mask and presenting herself in a false way uh, and, and nobody actually getting to know the real her. Huh. All right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, this is a double entendre about uh, sadomasochism, but, you know, but at the same time, I can't make out any of these lyrics. I wanted to look them up, but I didn't have any time to because um, the 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 uh, verses and so forth didn't I didn't I know what he was saying. You know what I mean? I just liked the way that it was going. I just liked the feel of the song. It was one of those nice. Yeah, just one of those good, solid rock songs that you don't really, you know, that I just enjoy without having to know what exactly what it was about. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. What were you saying? You know, it's basically Paul just saying, you know, I, I, this is what I, I see in this relationship and it's not going to get there and you keep your love in chains and I can't get anywhere near that. No one gets a piece of your heart. You know, it's over when it's never begun. You know, he's basically trying to say that you've got something that I want to you know, be involved in and he's not being let in, you know, and he's kind of like, He's bitter about it. He's mad. He's like, you know, you keep your love in chains, but only fear remains, and that keeps your love in chains. You know, he's basically trying to tell somebody that, you know, you might be missing out on something here. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, it, it's a strong, you know, musical track that he's, you know, singing over as well. Um, and we mentioned, too, you know, some of the players on this track. Um, I'm not sure who's doing the solo on this song, but this is Steve Lacey's credit as playing uh, guitar on this track. I'm not sure if he's credited as playing lead guitar. Um Let's see here. Uh, he's just credited as playing electric guitar, but anyhow, the solo you know, supports the the passion behind the vocal as well. I mean, it's a great solo. It's kind of sustaining notes and feedback, and you know, it's obviously you know a passionate song, and, and that's the way they deliver it. Um, you know, and I, again, this is you know part of we spoke meant earlier of the uh, the two different groups that are on, on this record, if you will, and this is uh, Craig Kampf, who's uh, later played with Steve Perry and co-wrote songs like Oh Sherry and uh, Strung Out. Uh, with Steve Perry, but, you know, this is basically like, you know, you have two different bands on this record, um, and I, I definitely agree with you, Dave, whereas the the, uh, the vocal execution is definitely sort of, you know, drenched in reverb, and it's hard to understand the lyrics, and that sort of is a discredit to, you know, the way the song should be presented, and it's it's hard for one to understand what they're singing and what they're saying, but, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun to know exactly what he is, what he is singing on, on this track as well. Uh, but my last point I want to make about uh, on this song is there's this sort of guitar stabs where it's like a an E minor chord that's you know this sort of sustained track. Um, around this time, Paul was playing uh, rhythm and lead guitar on an album uh, by uh, some guys known as the Alessi Brothers, and he sang and played guitar on a song called "You're Out of Love." And if you listen to that track, um, you know Paul has those guitar stabs that are similar to some of the guitar stabs that are in this song. Uh, but also the solo on that track they do with the Leslie Brothers is similar to, you know, some of the things we mentioned about the Hold Me, Touch Me solo, where you got the sort of, you know, it's not just somebody playing pentatonic blues licks. He's playing, he's got a melody in mind, you know, and that's one of the, the, the things that I've always respected about your guitar playing, Dave, is, you know, you play melodies, you play a solo, you, ha you have a theme in, always in mind, and I've always admired that about your guitar playing. I think that's something that you might have you know, been influenced by Paul on, because you know, I don't play that way, whereas I think You've always played that way, and that's a very mature, you know, outlook when it comes to playing guitar. Whereas it'd be easy just to play a bunch of notes and play fast, and gee, that's impressive, and that's a solo. Well, that doesn't necessarily count. You know, give me something that you, I'm going to remember, um, and I think that's something that you, know, you might have learned from this record. Well, I, I appreciate the compliment. I think you're selling yourself more than a little bit short there, because I think that you have certainly orchestrated solos you're on your own that that fall into that category too. Um, but but that's a, a great point about this whole album in general is that Bob Kulik or whoever's playing lead guitar on on each track. I mean these solos, they may have been played off the cuff, but they feel like 
integral parts of the song. They feel, you know, orchestrated and, and melodic and well thought out, and they go places that are interesting melodically and dynamically. I mean, you know, I, I just really, the, the lead guitar on this album really brings it, the whole album up to another level. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. In a way, you know, we, we, you know, John, you spoke. We've all spoken about, you know, which album is, you know, our favorite when it comes to these records. Which one's better, Aces or Paul's? In a way, you know, if you compare this to like albums like, you know, Love Gun or Rock and Roll Over, these albums have gone to a whole different level in terms of intellectual arrangement and execution and, and production, you know, and maturity. And not maturity in a way like I'm going to write a you know mature lyric, but you know, just the way that it's presented. You know, as a band, it's almost like, you know, how can you go from playing in a band that we play together, like, say, for what, they, they were together for, you know, four or five years, you know, Kiss, mm-hmm. and then you get pickup musicians, and you do a record that's even, let's say, more cohesive and, and, you know, more together than, you know, the band that I've been playing with, you know, for four or five years, I and mean, that's amazing. You know, it's, it's a similar to the, uh, the Keith Richards approach when he did the expensive winos groups. I mean, he basically said, I'm going to bring in some guys that, that I know can do what I need to do. And I'm going to make them sound like a band that's been together for 20 years. Mm, <laughs> that's, you know, this isn't a bunch of guys that are sitting around saying, okay, let's rehearse, you know, a couple times a week and write some songs and record an album. This is done in a short time frame. And that deserves a lot of credit because these albums, when you look at them, stand just as tall as any other records that were coming out at that time. Whether it was Zeppelin, we mentioned Kansas because of the Jeff Lichtman thing. You know, these albums are strong presentations. And the fact that they're thrown together in that short amount of time, with musicians that they not always play with is amazing. That's that's actually a good point. I mean, it doesn't sound like Paul Stanley playing with a bunch of studio musicians. It's, no, it sounds like like these are he's playing in a band situation with guys that know each other. And um, it's interesting. I mean, I guess timeline. He was recorded the first four songs in about ten days in New York, and then they recorded the next five songs over a course of about six weeks in L.A. Um, which again, that's a lot longer, but it, you know, it's not that long to make an album. Playing with the guys in Kiss, I think for for so long, Paul was probably acutely aware of all of their limitations, right? Like here's the kind of thing that Gene can't do, and Peter can't do, and Ace can't do, and now all of a sudden he's somewhat freed from those limitations and probably looking for players that can do the kinds of things that maybe he wanted the guys and kiss to do, but for whatever reasons, it just wasn't in their wheelhouse. And I think too, I mean, yeah. you know, when it comes, you kind of have to have a vision for what you're going to do when you have a short time frame. And I think, you know, I've had conversations with people about, you know, how do you get into bands? You know, it's, it's one thing if you play an instrument, you want to write songs, you know, how do you, it's really about relationships, who, you know, um, how re- you know, responsible you are and reliable you are as a player. I think, you know, we mentioned earlier on before we might have been you know, going live with this discussion, uh, let's say the drummer on the first side of the record um, was Richie Fontana. Richie was in a band called Piper that was also co- was managed by Bill Coin With Billy Squire. Um, we, yeah, Billy Squire was in the band uh, playing guitar and, and singing lead vocals. Um, Piper had also opened to Kiss on several shows in the Live 2 tour, um, particularly uh, the shows at uh, Madison Square Garden. So I think Paul sort of always kept his, you know, ear to the you know to the ground and saying okay who if i needed to have somebody and who do i know that i can bring into this you know he brought obviously bob kulik in to play guitar because you know bob obviously you know auditioned for kiss in the early days and they helped he kept the relationship through bob playing on live too so he knew his abilities and capabilities you know 
Hey, if you listen to the first uh, Piper record, um, you can hear Richie's drumming. It, that's also a record that's engineered uh, by Eddie Kramer. I mean, there's a sound there where, you know, when I listen to that record now, I say, okay, you know, I could see where Paul would say, okay, I want that guy to play drums on this record. Yeah. Uh, but then also, too, some of the bass players, at least one of the bass players, I think on side one, uh, was brought in as a referral from Bob Kulik, who was a bass player that was in Meatloaf at the time. So, you know, it's really who you know and who you, who you think, and, you know, if you're throwing the ball, they're going to, you know, they can throw it back. You know, I think Paul had a, a really keen vision of the types of players and kept an awareness of the people he was around. And when it was time to do this, he was very resourceful in bringing the people that he thought would, would do the job. And, and, you know, everybody that's on this record, you know, is is playing the edge of their abilities, but it's not in an uncomfortable way or in an uncomfortable way. I mean, they're really, you know, you can tell they're, they're, they're new to the material, but it sounds executed in uh, a rehearsed way, in, an, in a well-executed way. Yeah, it's definitely studio musicians, though, because, I mean, in terms of on the second side, it's definitely L.A. studio musicians when I was listening to it, because one of the things that stood out to me with the bass player, I know, for instance, I had heard some story, I forget where it was, one of the bass players that was brought in, they it was something that Paul had showed, told him what to play, and then the guy was like, I don't think I can play that, and Paul sat down with him and like taught him how to play exactly what he wanted him to play. And the guy was like, why don't you just play? You know, and I guess Paul was wanted to make sure the guy got paid, you know, or whatever, and had him do it. But then if you listen to the second side, which is the, I'm assuming is sort of the, of the, um, the L.A. side, that bass player is definitely uh, an L.A. bass player. Like, there there are moments in there where he, he's high, he, he plays real high end. There's a lot of walking things, but it's not overdone. You know what I mean? It's sort of semi pentatonic walking hmm. still, maybe a little bit further out, and it's the sound. The production on the bass is one of the first things I noticed on my first listen where I was going like, I don't like this album. This album is terrible. Oh, that's a kind of interesting bass part. You know what I mean? <laughs> he used his, the bass players for this album are definitely not bean players. They are not down and dirty. You know, they're, they're finger players, not pick players. You know what I mean? They're, hmm. But they're a little more they're a little more precise. They get a little bit of better tone, and they're a little bit higher end through the mix. They're a little punchier, you know what I mean? Um, as opposed to sort of what Gene plays, which is a very low, you know, plays a very um, low end type of stuff, and does not do a lot of walking stuff. I mean, whenever I hear Gene Simmons do like a walking line or something interesting with the bass, I'm like, oh wow, he sings and he's the demon, and he can play bass. You know what I mean? But on that on that second side of this album, there's a lot of really neat little bass fills and bass riffs that are not too in your face. Like I would assume it's only something I, as a bass player, other bass players would notice. You know what I mean? Whereas most people just let it go. Um, but it's definitely like that is a musician's bass play. You know what I mean? That is somebody who has come in to do nothing but play bass. And so that's what I take it as more of being a studio musician, at least on that second side. That's interesting. I mean, I, I, I take your point. I think both the bass guitar and the lead guitar are very carefully dancing around Paul's vocals. You know, there's never a point in the entire album where your attention is is being distracted away from Paul's vocals. And I think that that is very intentional, both on their part and on Paul's part, I'm sure. You know, there's never a conflict like where, oh, that 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 busy bass line is is, you know, distract. I mean, it's tastefully done, 
Uh, mm -hmm. But it is a little bit more noty in some places than Gene probably would have played. Um, I think the story that you were telling, actually, uh, I think Paul wanted a certain type of bass slide because uh, he was replacing um, somebody else's bass track on one of his tracks. And he was trying to explain to the bass player how he wanted it. The bass player wasn't getting it. Paul showed him how to play it on the bass. And the, and the guy said, hey, why don't you just do it? Because you seem like you have the right feel for it. Um, and Paul's like, no, no, you do it. And, uh, and he did it. And the bass player sort of felt weird about it because he was like, you know, I don't really feel like I captured exactly what Paul was going for. I think Paul actually played it better than I did. And, you know, you've, we've all been in the studio when, you know, something as simple as a bass slide shouldn't be that hard to, to capture. But sometimes, you know, <laughs> when you get into the granular detail of things like that, um, those are the things that can take the most time and can be the hardest thing to get. And I think the nice part about it was Paul, whether or not he got 100% what he wanted, uh, you know, was respectful enough of the guy that he wasn't just like, oh, let me, I'll just do it. Get out of my way, punk, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that track was in quite right, was the track. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, but I, yeah, I think if the track was in quite right, it might have been the, the breakdown uh, before the second verse. Um, if that's my guess. There's like a sort of you know R and B, mm -hmm. played around the third kind of thing, you know, bass riff there. But to your point, John, about the bass lines on the second side, you know, we haven't gotten to this track yet. But if you listen to the bass lines in Goodbye, um, you yeah, know, that's, that's a really sophisticated bass part there. That's right. behind exactly. that. It's really just like a big D chord, but it's such a, a supportive bass part that you know, without that something's missing and then again that comes from you know maturity and experience and you know perhaps do your work you know knowing how to you know, work under a song or work under a riff when it comes to being a, a you know supportive bass player playing you know a bass line it's a it's a bass player's bass line is what it is yeah the only people that are probably going to notice it are other bass players um but it's it's very sophisticated it's it's like i said on my first listen where i was like this is garbage oh, this is kind of a neat little bass riff. You know what I mean? Like, it's the one thing that really grabbed me the first time I listened. Now that's probably because I play bass. But, um, yeah, I think that he is definitely not worried about being Gene or having to spit blood or stomp in platform boots. He's more interested in supporting the song. But at the same time, not being overly showy. You know what I mean? So I No, and even... Yeah, even though, even though we might be segueing into you know the track goodbye, but like on the baseline uh, part, it's almost like a Billy Cox kind of you know Hendrix feel behind you know this song, which you know nobody ever said you know we're gonna mix you know Paul Stanley and Jimi Hendrix, but obviously you know he's he, Paul had seen all those guys play at the Film Maurice, so you know if he wanted something, he probably had a point of reference to say I want this, you know, and mm. the bass player probably delivered. Yeah, so talking about goodbye. This is a song, probably my favorite song on the album, to be honest. I, I mean, I, I love this song. Um, and uh, it was supposedly a song. Paul had some ideas for it, but he didn't have a song. The guys showed up in the studio saying, like, hey, what are we doing? And Paul said, hey, guys, go out and, like, get yourself some lunch and come back. I'll have something for you. I'm not quite ready yet. And they came back after grabbing a bite to eat, and he had this song. Which to me, how amazing is that? Yeah. <laughs> that he just did, you know, wrote this song basically over their lunch hour, um, and it's it's such a great, I mean, such a great riff. It's such a this is the one that really the 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 emotion 
and the romanticism of the star child really come out full force. And, you know, the, the lyrics are kind of existential in the way that Paul Stanley gets sometimes when he talks about, you know, ain't it funny how we win, but we lose. We're given prizes that we don't get to use. I mean, it's, you know, you're getting into some kind of philosophical, you know, stuff with him. And it's such a, I mean, you talk about personal meanings. I'm the chorus goodbyes only for now. Um, Cause I'm coming back. I swear it somehow. Obviously he's talking, you know, from the perspective of a male to a female, but from my perspective as a kid listening to this song, I thought about the band Kiss, you know, because we had seen them in 1979 and it was a long time between 1979 and March 4th, 1984, during which the prospect of them ever coming back, it seemed at times remote at best, you know, like, is the band going to continue? Are they going to break up? They're not as popular as they were. And so like, I would listen to this song and, and I, you know, vividly remember thinking as a little kid, like, you know, I believe that they're going to come back because this is Paul singing me his song that he believes it, no matter what the odds, no matter what it takes, he swears to me. So I believe they're going to come back. Yeah. Wow. No, I took, I took, yeah, I definitely feel the same way. It's that last song on the album too that helps. That says, you know, I'm, you know, yeah, it's a song for the fans, not only for the, you know, like an ex-girlfriend, but it it runs a double meaning. You know, it's saying goodbye to the fans and saying we'll be back. You know, kind of deal. And it goes to some really cool, interesting places musically too. Uh, particularly the the bridge on this song is, you know, such a, a great part. You know, I, I always, you know, for me, the fun in listening to the songs is, you know, yeah, you can write a, a good, you know, hooky chorus or, you know, a good hooky, um, you know, verse, but like the bridge on this is just insane because the, the chord changes there are sort of like R&B, but then like there's a triple harmony vocal that's going on. They're just thick as, you know, molasses, but yeah. so great. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then that breaks into Paul with that, you know, cascading, wonderful outro vocal that just like, Man, I want to be in the room when that guy's on the microphone because that must be something to to see in person. Man, his voice is amazing, and that comes across much like I was saying, you know, with the the track "Taking Away Together" is one where it sounds like, you know, that's what Paul sounds like in a, in a concert type venue. You know, but this is like, you know, it's almost like he's sitting right next to you. Can you imagine the power that's coming from you know from that guy's lungs? And it's just great. It's a great closer to the record, and it was so fun. You know, because I remember, you know, Dave, you and I, I think we waited for hours when Paul was doing his 89 solo tour when we were, you know, in front of Metropolitan in Pittsburgh, and now a defunct club. But, you know, when he's playing songs like this and, you know, Tell You Belong to Me, I mean, there were a lot of guys that were, you know, <laughs> basically going to the bathroom, standing there in their jeans. I and mean, it was amazing to hear these songs live because, you know, we never thought in years, speaking of goodbye, you know, here's an album that are so many great songs on this record and only one got played on the Dynasty Tour, which is Move On. Yeah. And then you fast forward to the 11 again, years why? later. We got, it makes no sense. But sorry. Yeah. I, I, again, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a compliment to the band when you can say that, okay, I have all this great material and I just don't have the time to be able to pr- present it live. I mean, they've got so much great catalog uh, that has never really been, you know, properly performed in front of an audience that really could be. I mean, it, it, you know, it just goes to show that you can be that busy, but still be super, super productive and put out a quality product. Uh, you know, amazing. Again, the fact that you, know, you can put out four solo albums on the same day, and you've got essentially you know four different bands. I mean, nobody, there's no cross pollination. Nobody's playing on anybody else's record. 
Um, and this is just, you know, four creative guys doing what they're going to do. And you got two great examples. Ace's album that we discussed last week and Paul's album that we're discussing today. Amazing. Interesting that both Ace and Paul recording completely independently of each other kind of utilize the female background singers in very similar ways, using the yeah. oohs and the ahs and the kind of, the kind of, you know, bluesy, ballsy, Brooklyn kind of female background type singing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because in the Ace you know, example, I think Eddie Kramer, Brian, and Susan Collins, and in this case, you know, Paul was using uh, Desmond Child's basically, you know, we're going to call these Ace backing band. But, you know, they're basically all, you know, strong vocalists in that group. Um, you know, and, and the fact that Paul could, you know, recognize that and bring that in shows that, again, it's all who you know, and, you know, it, it's, you know, you, you've got to, you know, you got to believe in the people that you're bringing into it, and it, you can see this straight away in a player, then you know straight away, and you had a great vision of how you wanted this album to come across and how you put it together. And it's interesting, too, how, you know, the first side is basically Paul producing, the, you know, the record, and then he brings in, you know, producer Jeff Glixman, and I, I think, you know, Paul essentially is probably looking for an engineer, whereas Jeff was looking for more of like a collaborator, you know, in terms of arrangements. And, you know, at least, you know, Paul gave him still, the, you know, the, the co-production credit. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, my question really overall with this record is, why did they move operations from New York to Los Angeles? Uh, did Paul want to have a whole different group completely? Or was he having, was there a hard out with Electric Lady and they had to get out of New York and he had to you know, basically pick up our operations with a different group in Los Angeles? I think he was just being cool ass Paul Stanley who could do whatever he wanted to do. I mean, honestly, that's how I buy it. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I know I'm sort of saying that it's funny, but I mean, sure, I'm sure there was probably stuff he had to do in LA and stuff he had to do in New York. He probably had enough money to be able to pull it off like that. Well, also, right, he took the Concord, he flew on the Concord to England <laughs> to mix the record. So, yeah. yeah, he was definitely living large in a lot of ways. Right, yeah, exactly. I'm sure that's exactly how he did it. I mean, for a band that literally, if you read all of their, you know, press up until this point, it's always like, and we were about to go out of business, and we were about to go out of business, we <laughs> were about to go, you know what I mean? Like, that seems to be the, 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 that seems to be the constant lament of them throughout most of the biography and autobiography that I read about them. It's like, you know, they're financially going to be in trouble, they're financially going to be in trouble. And it's like, well, Apparently not, you know, if you're able to fly between New York and Los Angeles. I mean, you're definitely not getting a four-track in your basement, you know, so it's, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's the, yeah. the whole point of these things is like, do we really want to see how the sausage is made? You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, I love talking about all the minutiae and how these albums get made, but sometimes it's, um, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a little too much because you're like, you're not really hurting for money if you can do all that, so... You know, the, the big complaint, and it only sold, you know, they sold, they sold, sent a million out and only 50 million, or, you know, half of that sold and all that kind of stuff. They're like, that's still a lot of records, you know, <laughs> like, um, so I, I don't know, but it's just the whole lamentation of how hard it is to be in Kiss is starting to sort of grate on me the more research I do about these guys. So, well, I mean, there's, there's a quote from Gene Simmons where he says, you know, every band has its ups and downs. But to be honest, the worst day in our life as Kiss is probably better than the best day in just about any other band's life. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So absolutely. Any uh, final final thoughts to sum up Paul Stanley's solo album? 
No, I was going to talk about the color and the, the paintings and the use of color and stuff like that. And why purple for Paul? Um, you know, because Paul, uh, purple is the color uh, in color theory. It is the color of royalty. It is the color of um, homosexuality or deviant sexuality. It is also the color of um, health in many cases. It is a color that many women will say is their favorite, but no men will say is their favorite. So I found that kind of interesting because my original thought was, is it Ace Fraley red? But he's not. He's blue. Uh, and uh, Dean is red, which makes sense. The demon, Hellfire, all that kind of stuff. Ace Fraley is blue, which is a very masculine co color, also a really popular color. So I'm interested as to why Paul chose purple. Obviously, because it's sort of, it's got that vibe of like, you know, I mean, you know, Prince used purple as well. It's sort of a way of saying, you know, like, I'm, I'm sort of a feminine man. I'm non-threatening. I'm sexy, but, you know, whatever. Not too manly at the same time. So, I don't know. I thought it was interesting that he, purple was his choice of color. I don't know. Did he get to choose the color or was it more like, um, were they assigned it? You guys in your research, have you ever done anything like that? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I assume they would have had final over approval over if they were unhappy with the colors, right? But um, yeah, I, I think you hit on all the, the points. I mean, the whole idea of royalty and and um, kind of, it's a somewhat effeminate color. Although I would say that purple's my favorite color, although it's not a color that I think I personally look good in. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's interesting. It's one that I will go to a lot of times when I when I need to color something, add color to something, I will automatically go to purple and yellow because they are not obvious complementary colors, even though they are. So, yeah, I like purple as well. But again, it's a lot of men will not say that purple is their, you know, or women, women will say it's their favorite color, but men will not admit it for the most part. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, there's... Uh, yeah, now Mike, you said something interesting before we started recording about the, the how the solo albums they're all basically set up to look exactly the same, except you've found something that is kind of an anomaly. Yeah, basically the the Gene album, the Ace and the Peter albums, you know, when you look at the, the vinyl copies, uh, there's a side A and a side B, and that's clearly defined on the on the back cover of the record. Whereas with Paul's, uh, it's just basically the songs in order as they're presented, but there's there's no breakdown in terms of the side A or side B in terms of the track listing. Um, and it's, it's interesting too because this is a record where you know this is recorded in two different you know parts of the country. Um, so you would think that they would say, okay, there's a, there's a side A and a side B, but that's not the case in terms of the way it's listed here. It's almost like these songs were meant to be as, as a whole, even though it was you know, sort of recorded in two different stages in two different locations. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know what the reason behind that is, but also, too, um, on, on the point of the, of the colors chosen for the solo records, um, those became the colors that they used on the uh, for the costumes for the Dynasty tour. So, right, yeah. Did they yeah. did they know yeah, that early on? That, yeah, did they know? That, okay, when it comes to the next round of costumes, you know, we're going to go with this color scheme, and it's going to be a theme, and this is sort of you know a preview to, you know, to how that's going to go. Who knows? There must have been some discussions or you know some decisions made at that point moving forward. Well, you know, just all to, the to plan colors. For that. Yeah, I mean, all the colors work. I have no, I think the yeah. purple is the perfect color for Paul. 
Yeah. Because it is it is sort of the well, they were trying to sort of sell him as sort of the effeminate David Bowie esque kind of character in the band. Um, in fact, I'll be perfectly honest. I mean, there were moments when I was, uh, you know, in, in college where I was looking and I was like, I bet you Paul Stanley's gay. You know what I mean? Because, and, you know, but he's not. I mean, he's married and dated lots of women, but there's always something a little bit effeminate about him, which is not, you know, probably rude on my part to assume that this has something to do with his, you know, his sexuality and, and cliched or whatever, but um, and me reading too much into it, but it's interesting that he uses purple, which is a, a feminine color, and you know. But then you also have Prince who used it, um, and I would argue that the reason Prince used it is to create sort of a non-threatening sexuality towards women. You know what I mean? And, and um, so maybe that was sort of Paul's idea about it. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of the the purple is interesting. Purple has always been, you know. I'm kind of like an art teacher now, but purple and orange are my favorite colors to dissect. It's like, what is, what are they? I mean, it makes perfect sense. You know, the green for, um, the, the green for Peter Chris, I mean, green usually means, you know, for most people it means money, but it's, it also means nature. That makes more sense because a cat is connected to nature and that kind of stuff. And it makes, you know, that it makes sense for him. Blue, masculine color, that makes sense for ace. Red, anger, fire, urgency, that makes sense for gene. Although if you really, if you asked me in 1978, I would have flipped gene and, Paul, um, gene and ace's color. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's hindsight because I see, I see um, uh, ace's, uh, uh, the way he plays is more urgent, more, um, you know, uh, trying to grab your attention and see uh, Gene being more masculine. So I would see him more as a blue than a red. Hmm. And again, this is not, this is not chakra bullshit. This is like color theory that I studied. You know what I mean? And like I've read stuff. Sure. It's like, this is, you know, you can go into like any graphic design thing and, and see this stuff. So I'm not making this up. I promise you, but I don't know. It's just interesting to think about like why they chose the colors they did. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, them not having a side one and side two listed in the same way the other so albums do, I'm thinking just, yeah. I wonder, you know, there's two possibilities. One, they just made a mistake, right? Which they were doing yeah. a lot of drugs at Casablanca in 1978. So that's possible that the art department slipped by. Um, the other possibility is maybe the track uh, order wasn't set in stone by the time they had to print the album. And instead of listing it side one and side two and thinking, okay, well, if they change it, that's going to be wrong. They just listed mm. the tracks, you know, because if you look at some albums from that era, I think uh, the tracks listing on Unmasked, for instance, is not in any order. It's like alphabetical order on the back of the album. Um, it's not actually yeah. in the order of the album. So that that could be a thing, too. Maybe the other albums, they had the, the track listing set in stone in time to be able to do that. And then they just you know, they had to do what they had to do just to make sure they didn't get it wrong with Paul's. Could be. Good point. Yeah, wasn't there some sort of mistake on what the B-side for his uh, Hold Me, Touch Me uh, between uh, British and American things? I had read some, uh, some sort of weird detail about that, that they had, like, flaked on what they actually put on the B-side of the, that single. Yeah, I think the B side of the single "Hold Me, Touch Me" was supposed to be, I think, "Love and Chains," but you know, it might have been listed as "Love and Chains." And I think when you play the record, you would you would hear "Goodbye." Oh, is, is the B side interesting? 
That's awesome. That'd be one of those things I'd be totally psyched to have discovered. <laughs> yeah. And Mike, you uh, you have uh, an vinyl edition of the Paul Stanley solo album that has an interesting thing written in on the, uh, what do you even call that? The part of the lacquer right by the label. Yeah, sorry. That, that, as a matter of fact, um, we're yeah, talking about your resources and who you know. Uh, it's the, the closeout groove, I believe, right? Okay. That's Is it a technical term? Yeah. All right. Sure. I'll, 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 I won't take credit for that. But actually, no, that, that inscription is um, some of the, the musicians that were on this record, particularly R Richie Fontana was the drummer. He was later in a band with Sean Delaney, and the band was called Scat Brothers. The closeout groove of the Scat Brothers record, uh, there's an inscription that reads, I love Paul. Um, and in the Scat Brothers group were Sean Delaney, who uh, collaborated with Kiss in the early days in terms of their uh, stage production as well as songwriting. But also Richie Fontana, the drummer on Paul's album on the first side, was the drummer in Scat Brothers as well. So uh, that's sort of a point of reference for what we're talking about right now. Yeah, I want to say, not to jump ahead to Gene's album, but I, I want to say that there are vinyl editions of Gene's solo album that have inscriptions in that in the closeout grooves of the album as well. I'll look into it. I think I, I seem to recall that as a kid, but uh, it's been a while since I've you know investigated that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Final thoughts about Paul. I'm kind of amazed that I went from hating the album to suddenly kind of liking it. <laughs> I mean, I really did. I mean, I think I played it twice. Like I said, I bought those four cassettes at a garage sale, or maybe it was a church sale, or something like that. It's one of those like fill a bag for you know five dollars things, and I was like, oh my god, it's all four solo albums, you know, and um, and playing it maybe twice when I actually after I purchased it. Um, and then now, just listening to it maybe three or four times, it's really liking it. Mike? Uh, to me, the album stands up as a, as a timeless piece of work. And it's almost like, like, like I said, one of those you know, uh, great, you know, lost you know, classic records that you know, should be discovered again and again. Um, and just to the point of you know, Paul sort of having a vision for how he wanted this record to come across, uh, Dave, you mentioned that the fact that he took you know, the Concord to England to, to mix this record. I guess he had some situations with the Concorde where, you know, basically the flight had to be diverted and they had to land and, uh, you know, short of their destination. Um, but the point being, if he wanted to mix this record to Trident Studios in England, um, when he, he later produced an album uh, that he, uh, by a band he worked with, a band called New England, uh, he also mixed the record at, at the same studio with the same uh, engineers. So that was obviously a place where he uh, felt comfortable uh, in terms of, you know, presenting a product um, and wanting a place, you know, to, to, to mix a record that he thought was, uh, you know, true to his vision. So it's interesting that he takes the solo album, mixes it in, at a studio that, you know, Kiss didn't use, but he also, when he produced a record by the band of England, he took that same approach and, and mixed the record um, in the same studio in England. I assume the place called Trident Sound or Trident Studios had a Trident Sound console or console, at the, at, you know, which would have been state-of-the-art at the time. Um, so sure. maybe he felt oh, okay. comfortable well, that on sense. that. Maybe yeah. He wants better technology, but yeah, still. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm with you, Mike. I, I think that this album um, expanded Paul Stanley, both in terms of his, his voice, his guitar playing, his songwriting. Um, I, you know, I love everything about this album, but I do, I agree with John, Hold Me, Touch Me feels a bit contrived, but you know, on, on the whole, um, I think this album is every bit as good in its way as, as Ace Frehley. Um, so next week we'll talk about the Gene Simmons album, which is basically uh, 
not not like Ace and, and Paul's album in, in quite the same way, but um, an album that has some moments of brilliance on it as well. So, absolutely, looking forward to it. All right, yeah, it's gonna be cool. Stay safe, guys. Great to talk to you as always. Vote. Yes. You too. See you on the other side. <laughs> All right. Take care. Take care, guys. All right. All right. See you later. Bye.